Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. Play ball, everybody! We're uh, yeah, doing yeah, yeah. we're doing our baseball month. I had like mm-hmm. a dozen or so different things I could have said there, but I chose that one. Sorry, Tim. Hey, it it works. It's fitting. You know, it's a snowy late March day here in Canada, which I think really lines up with you know our our only MLB team here, the Jays. Their opening day game in '77, there was snow on the field, so they were really the laughing stock of the league until they won uh i don't know a decade and a half later but i think i think we really got that spirit here there's snow outside we're celebrating the end of the the mlb lockdown and uh and and really getting into that spring training uh mindset with the snow yeah you know i was really in spring mode for the past two weeks then Mm -hmm. today i wake up ready to record this podcast and yeah it's just miserable snow yeah it's not great. So it is nice to kind of escape into a greener, warmer setting. Uh, even even this, it's kind of a dour setting, I'd say, the Oakland the Oakland A Stadium. But we're talking about Moneyball today. We're doing for this month, we're doing two baseball movies. Um, and I think maybe first, you want to just talk about why baseball works in movies. It's I, I would say among sports movies, it is the one that sort of rises to the top. I think they're the most dramatic and romantic and and effective and uh yeah what, what do you think about that day well i think that you're definitely on to something baseball movies have clearly outshone every other sports movie or every kind of other sport representation in movies uh by quite a margin i would say there are exceptions in almost every sport and we're going to probably talk about some of those today but yeah. i think baseball overall just naturally has the ability to ha- to be cinematic uh mm-hmm. so therefore and obviously it's almost like mythologized in american lore american mm-hmm. history and american culture so america being the epicenter of the movie world as well being hollywood it kind of makes sense that this is such a a focus of that industry and has been since it, like baseball has been the most consistent sport i think in movies too not just uh the most prolific but throughout history the most consistently represented yeah absolutely i think you're absolutely right like we should mention that a lot about what we're going to talk about in how baseball works in movies and why it works is pretty well distilled in this uh video by patrick willems uh, yeah that was a great real, video basically yeah, check it out in the show notes. It really breaks down why other sports aren't cinematic and how that's just to their detriment. There are still good sports movies in virtually every different sport. But baseball rises at the top for a number of reasons. Number one, like it's it's slower. It has a rhythm. It has a pace. Um, it's a lot like you can see people's faces really easily. All these things that you kind of need for movies. Yeah, that was actually uh, baseball really... fits really well into it. That was a really good point from the video too. That's just you know it's very obvious, but obvious. But of course, baseball is one of the only sports where you're not wearing protection all over your body. Mm-hmm. So you do you get to see people's faces, and obviously, when you're making a movie, that's kind of a big part of uh, casting and having actors in a movie is their faces need to be seen. This yeah. So like, you can you know when you when you hire Robert Redford or Kevin Costner or Gina Davis to be in your movie, you can. 
you get every cent out of that investment on on having that face on screen whereas in a football movie um, they're gonna have a big helmet on same with hockey basketball as as Williams explains in the video basketball kind of gives baseball a run for its money um, it's a pretty cinematic sport but again it's fast you got it's more of a team sport um, not that baseball teams don't win as teams but you kind of he mentions you have the duel um, setup between and when I say duel I mean like between gunslingers where yeah. you've got your pitcher and your yeah. batter which is again an inherently sim- cinematic thing right that yes. this it slows down it's who's going to draw first it's is he going to strike out? Is he going to hit a home run? All these things that really make baseball just work in the the rhythms of what movies are already doing. Yeah, and there is something about the crowds and the environment, too, because I feel, you know, I've actually been a part of trying to shoot commercials for uh, specifically a hockey team, mm-hmm. uh, local here, and the biggest challenge was making it look like an active crowd was there. Yeah. And one of the things that baseball has to its advantage is it's not like basketball or it's not like hockey where it's stadium bound indoors and mm-hmm. your your fans are right pressed against the playing surface, whether it's mm-hmm. ice or whether it's the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, in baseball, your fans are so far away from the actual field, they're like little dots in the yep. distance, right? They're They're like mm-hmm. little... You have to see them with a microscope. So mm-hmm. I think inherently you have something mythological about that. There's something uh, extraordinary because of yeah. the magnitude and the scale of the baseball stadium. And then all the fans are just like little dots out there and you don't even get to see the specific faces of those people. That's a that's a good point. There is like There is this sort of distance that implies almost like i think in a cinematic setting like a reverence almost like yeah in basketball scale. right like you know um jack nicholson is right on the court next to like the players like the lakers right like <laughs> yes there's no you're just you're just seeing people like everyday people yelling at the players directly at their level on the same floor as them in baseball yeah there's like this special stage this hallowed ground and everyone is yeah they're way back and it's it's uh, from a production standpoint it's going to be a lot easier to fake too right especially with exactly even basic Cinematic. cgi to just throw throw a crowd into the distant unfocused background up these you know mountainsides essentially yeah um, and even like we can we can talk about this talking about cinematography for Moneyball, but even in this mm. movie, they they do some really cool things with the cinematography of the crowd, where it's almost like the lights are turned out in parts of the stadium, and it's like yeah. the crowd is just all black. Mm. That is kind of usually the cheat for some sports movies to block out parts of the crowd that they can't actually hire that many actors to fill in. And mm. it was just interesting seeing Moneyball do this without even needing to do it. It was just a merely stylistic decision. I kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, before we go on, like that's th- those are tons of reasons why baseball works in movies. Um, but Moneyball obviously wasn't the only option for this. We did do the audience or the listener vote, and we had Moneyball, we had Field of Dreams, Sandlot, and The Natural. Um, you know, I grew up watching The Sandlot a lot. Like it was kind of 
you know, it, at our cottage up in the summer, me and my family, we'd play a lot of just sort of uh, backfield baseball, things like that. I have a lot of connections to that. I'm a big fan of the book, Shoeless Joe, and I have a real soft spot in my heart for Field of Dreams. Taylor, I know you were mentioning that Field of Dreams won. It would have been an interesting discussion because I don't think you're a huge fan. Well, we would have maybe like had our first, like, <laughs> you like the movie and I really don't like the movie <laughs> discussion. You don't like it? If you like in in like thirty seconds, can you give a breakdown of why you don't like it? Is it is it too saccharine? Is it poorly made? Is it cloying? Is it all those things? <laughs> I think cloying is a good word. I I just yeah. think it's it's trying too hard to make something magical that I don't really fully buy into. I don't have that sensibility of where I think baseball is the greatest game ever created. I don't think that see the the smell of the grass in the field is Mm -hmm. is magical Mm -hmm. to me (laughs) like it yeah so everything that that movie is doing on a sensory level is is really interesting to me because it's relying on its audience being so captivated and i just am not in the audience that is what it's look i'm not the audience that that movie's looking for because that movie clearly works for a lot of people Mm -hmm. yeah you're saying you're not romantic about baseball i am really not uh, I like playing baseball very much, but it's simply, to me, it, it is a game. Okay. Okay, no, I, I think that makes total sense. I think that makes this discussion even more interesting because Moneyball is a lot about subversion, a lot about falling out of love with the game and maybe falling back into it through a very indirect path of statistics and numbers and rejecting conventional wisdom. So we can we can dig into that and how that works for you as a person who doesn't necessarily have a a little soft spot in their heart for the game like other people do but let's cover our bases here yeah uh, <laughs> well done uh, yeah yeah uh, partly inspired by true events moneyball tells the story of oakland a's manager billy bean challenging baseball's century-long conventional wisdom by building a low-budget team that could go all the way directed by bennett miller moneyball stars brad pitt and jonah hill and was released september 23rd 2011 and our canadian listeners can watch it on netflix right now the tagline is what are you really worth hey we did it it's a good tagline actually too i i think that it's really simple uh to the point covers what the movie is really assessing critiquing i think it's a good one yeah and and so circling back to what we were talking about i think you're right a lot of baseball movies can very um very easily rely on their audience's connection to baseball. It's such a popular thing, especially if you're releasing a baseball movie in in the Western market. You know you're going to get people, if you just talk about for the love of the game and the smell of a catcher's mitt and the yeah. sound like that you can hear when it's a homer as, as opposed to a line drive or a bunt. Like there's all these things that, that they can hook into. And this movie very much from its direction and its content is about rejecting what you think you know about baseball or what you think you know about baseball movies there are not really there's maybe one baseball montage right of the when the when the a's are doing their 20 game streak and yeah of then there's people actually playing baseball as a team yes that's the Mm -hmm. only montage and then then otherwise there's maybe two key points where people are playing the game on the field and something happens Otherwise, this is a movie of montages of computer screens and statistics and uh, mathematical analysis and economics and uh, contract negotiations. And and family values, Tim. (laughs) And 
yeah, there is a daughter in it. This is one part that I'm not sure why it's there. And I mean, three people wrote scripts for this movie and the director coalesced them all together. And I think someone wanted to humanize Billy Bean. And I think the arc of him falling in love with baseball again, something that ostensibly ruined his life, is enough of an arc. But I think that they're also like, but if we put a cute 12-year-old girl who sings a song in it, maybe it'll it'll get an Oscar. I don't know. Can you explain the daughter? I, I have. She's in this. I can explain why I think she's in the movie, but yeah. I have. Yeah. I will not defend <laughs> the decision on any whoever, whichever of the three writers wrote that character mm-hmm. into the movie. I don't think it's a very strong aspect of the film. I think the song gets more lame as the movie goes on, and every yeah, time I watch this movie, those are the scenes I am just dreading, and I just want to get mm-hmm. back to Billy Bean talking to. Pete, who's played by Jonah Hill, or, you know, I just want to get back to some baseball statistics, please. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so just for some context for what's actually happening in this movie. So I, I'm not like an absolute baseball fan, but I do like sports. Uh, I specifically like what this movie is doing because I'm a statistics fan. This is this movie is for people like me. I, I like mm-hmm. the stats. I like figuring out ways to defy conventional thinking in sports i like players overcoming the odds these are the thing these are the storylines that uh, and reasons why i like sports um the oakland athletics even when i was a kid were a cool team to to in baseball to like because they had awesome colors they had a cool logo mm-hmm. the green yeah. and the yellow and the a i was like that's that's a cool mm-hmm. that's a cool team yeah. and i remember not specifically this story because it was ha- it happened when I was pretty young, but I remember knowing that this team was was defying the odds because they were an underdog team because they had only a forty million dollar cap, uh, and in mm. in baseball, unlike some other sports, there is a salary cap, but you can exceed it if you pay a luxury tax. So only mm. the rich teams can exceed the salary cap because they can afford to pay the tax on top of it. And I don't, I don't need to get into any more detail than that, but so the Yankees can have a massive payroll every single year, whereas mm-hmm. a team like the Oakland Athletics has to resort to finding more cost-effective methods to building a successful team. All those things are really uh, big draws for me. I like the scenario painted by that picture. Yeah. And uh, B- Billy Bean as a central character a character who Brad Pitt really wanted to play for a long time, who really apparently captured the true essence of Billy Bean's mannerisms. I think this is a really cool representation of sport in movie because it's so unconventional. Well, and yeah, to to speak to what what you're talking about first, just about sort of what Oakland was and what they represented and what they were doing with so little money. That's how this, this movie frames itself very quickly as being, this is not the A's versus the Yankees. This is, the A's budget versus the Yankees budget. So there's one of those first title cards where it's, um, it's like a, you know, um, like a hundred million dollars versus like forty million dollars, and then it fades in Yankees versus A's, and they're losing their elimination game. They got close. They didn't clinch it, right? And very quickly makes it clear that this is not uh, about one team versus another team. This is. Um, a team against the institution or really like this is Bean versus almost everybody in baseball. So it's a baseball movie, not about playing the game or being a player. It's very much about everything after that and everything that's happening behind the scenes. And 
what really becomes a like a David and Goliath story where you can't just um, try to subvert the game. You have to win over people's minds too. You have to convince them. And we'll we'll talk a bit a bit about this in our scene. But you know he had he's up against his owner to some extent. Uh, his team manager or um, sorry, what what's Art Howe's position? I can't remember. He's one of the coaches, right? Well, he, he just he he sets the lineup. He's the coach. He he yeah. he has final say over the lineup yeah. card. Yeah, Bean Bean's the manager. Um, so yeah, to to put it more simply, this is a very irregular baseball movie. That still, I think, manages to toe the line and still allow you to sort of love baseball because it does have, it you know, it does have a climatic scene where the the odds and the method of Moneyball doesn't really come into play. You still just have a an outlier in someone making a big hit uh, when it really matters. Um, but this, I mean, it sounds like this was from from its inception, right? Is based on the book Moneyball, which is essentially for real shorthand, Moneyball is the idea of devoting your budget to buy runs to buy wins so you're not buying star players you're not buying personality which is how scouting and team development was for the first 150 years in baseball until this really started to pick up some speed Um, people would buy players offer them contracts because they they you know they played well but also like were they handsome did they have confidence did they have personality were they going to sell tickets and could you believe that they would be confident in themselves as players so there's a lot of great scenes where you have just extremely well cast super old scouts talking about guys and being like well that he passes the eye candy test he's good looking he's got a good looking girlfriend which means he's confident all this stuff and you're like this is how they're judging whether or not someone would be a valuable player on their team is all these esoteric, ineffable, tertiary qualities. Yeah, he passes the eye candy test. He's got the looks. He's ready to play the part. He just needs to get some playing time. I'm just saying, his girlfriend is a six at best. Look, if we're trying to replace the um, Yeah, and this movie is really the only one I can think of that talks about sports being reduced down to a number because a lot of mm-hmm. diehard sports fans as you can imagine don't aren't particularly fond of looking at sports entirely from a numerical perspective mm-hmm. understandably yeah. there needs to be a mixing of the two ideologies as most sports yeah. have come to realize uh since the since mm-hmm. the era of moneyball people have kind of realized you need to combine both methodologies to in fact create a true roster that will win um but Ultimately, like this idea started in 1980s, and it was by a guy named Bill James, and he his his goal was the search for objective knowledge about baseball statistics, which obviously a lot of people didn't like. But basically, if you're not a sports person, what you the way you can think of this is all those statistical columns that you see beside a player's name that gives them little numbers beside each ranking them for each individual stat. What Bill James proposed and what the era in which Moneyball is speaking about did was combine all these statistics and numbers into one number, basically mm-hmm. quantifying players on one statistic, a general number. How likely are they to get on base? Yes. Right? This is the code that I've written for our year-to-year projections. This is building in all the intelligence that we have to project players. Okay. It's about getting things down to one number. Using stats the way we read them, will find value in players that nobody else can see. 
And if you're on base more, then you get more runs. If you get more runs, you get more wins. It doesn't matter if they're doing all these things that are conventionally not particularly, you know, sexy things in baseball, like getting walked or bunting or seeing a ton of pitches, like playing offensively against the other pitcher by making them throw more because you'll take two strikes before you even bother to swing. And you're not worried about the third strike because you you know, based on the statistics, you're probably going to get walked. Or by the fifth inning, the, the, their star pitcher is going to be exhausted because they're throwing two and a half times more balls than they, than they normally would. Um, all these things that, again, you're right, like they're just... People don't like these ideas because they're not particularly fun unless, of course, you're a statistics-oriented person like yourself, right? Yeah, um, and I, I'm not trying to play like... like I, I really love sports to the point where I'm not like this cold-sided... Yeah. Like, I'm not like like a cold void and when it comes to players and player evaluation i just like the idea that you can be a an underdog team and use yeah an equation to kind of put yourself on a more even playing field yeah like like uh you know jonah hill's character uh brand says over the the montage that i'm going to talk about later he says i do believe that there is a a championship team that we can afford here largely by looking for people who are overlooked for all those reasons that the the scouts mentioned. But all of this is to say that this movie is in conversation with the romanticism about baseball and how it's not always correct and challenging to what extent by being, you know, focused on star players and personalities and stories and mythology and the romantic aspects of it, are you overlooking other options, right? So... I mean, all that is to say, like, that that's the structural and institutional side. In line with that, the parallel arc of this story is Pitt as Billy Bean basically being someone whose life was ruined by listening to scouts who were like, you're a great player, you're handsome, <laughs> you're all these things that we want, and his career fizzled out real fast. So he's he's a bitter person. Like, Pitt's character is not a particularly nice guy. And there's a lot of sort of under the surface, even rage, you know, going on. I think I think it's a it's a very interesting performance because I think it's Pitt, and we'll talk about um, Philip Seymour Hoffman too. Both of these highly charismatic people having to play uncharismatic athletes, like ex athletes, these guys who who aren't convincing or charming. No, far from they're, it. They're, <laughs> They like they were in their element when they were on the field, and now that they have to inspire people or talk to people, they're not that at all. And I love that you have these two guys who you know could could re- read you the phone book and make it in- interesting. But I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman says what like fourteen words in this movie? Yeah, and he he sounds like a mopey teenager for most of the time he's on screen. Yeah, it, you, you're right. Real... Having having two powerhouse actors acting like this is pretty interesting for a movie and i think it adds further to that context of decontextualizing the mythology of baseball Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 fairly dry it's and the other thing being that like we should mention one of the scripts so there are three scripts that were written and bennett miller the director who in line with what we were talking about before he's not a baseball fan and he didn't want to make this like a conventional baseball movie so again that's he i think he was a good fit for it even though i haven't seen i don't think i've seen any of his other movies i haven't seen capote oh really there's, not there's, fox there's, catcher there's another, there's another one that he had yeah i haven't seen fox catcher either oh bo- both those movies are really yeah. good i like them both definitely check them out more than Moneyball. yeah all right cool 
but I, check but out, but I, I like all three of his movies. Yeah, yeah. Really but, um, interesting no, director. So, I heard he's really picky with what he chooses to do. That's why he doesn't do very much. Interesting. Sorry, right. got you off there. No, no, it's all, it's all good. So he had three scripts, one of which was written by Aaron Sorkin, and this movie does not sound like an Aaron Sorkin movie. You can see, I think you can see the dialogue somewhere, but for anyone who doesn't know, Sorkin, you know, um, became famous writing for The West Wing. Uh, he did Social Network, um, Molly's Game more recently directed and wrote, and he's iconic for this very fast, back and forth, extremely smart dialogue. It's you know, a hundred like a hundred and twenty words a minute. People are are. It's almost like old screwball comedy style, uh, fast dialogue, fast exchanges, and everything in this movie is slow. And it's you know Pitt taking very measured pauses between saying things. And again, you wouldn't believe that any of these guys are gonna be motor mouths and show offs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I typically like Sorkin's scripts for their mm-hmm. sharpness, but mm-hmm. like I don't know Sorkin's script. With this kind of context, I don't think it would work out right. So I like the pacing of this movie because it doesn't follow Sorkin's pacing. And I think you're right. You see slivers of his dialogue because there are those lines that are almost too sharp or too witty for a real-life person to make. And that's Mm. what is typically the defining mark of a Sorkin script. Yeah, a Sorkin script often, like, I'm a big fan too, but, like, if you want to be reductive, it's the kind of thing where, like, when you're imagining an argument that you got into afterwards and you're like, I should have said this and then they would have said that. And then I should have said this. And it's very, uh, it's almost, um, escapist or like, um, like aspirational where you're like, I wish people were this smart and could talk like this, but it really only exists in the movies. And and that's kind of why it's fun. But I, I, I think, I think it's very easy to see this movie being made in a much more conventional way. Like it got a ton of Oscar nominations, but I think for the content and you know, the cast and all those things, you're like, yeah, of course this is an Oscar drama contender. And then you watch it and like, there's really no, no one goes for it. No one's yelling. No one has a big screaming that this is where they're going for the Oscar. There's almost no speeches. Hill has a couple monologues. And I think his value here is he's such a light touch because he, he has the stuff that could be the most sappy. And he really, he explains it to you like an economist, right? When he's talking about this great story about, about this guy who didn't know he hit a home run or about this island of misfit toys. Those are the kind of things where, like, you could start rolling your eyes pretty easily. Yeah, and I, I think he's got a very light touch on it. And I think I think he really makes this movie sing. I think it... Pitt gets a lot by getting to work off of uh, Jonah Hill as a scene partner. I think Jonah Hill was a tremendous get for this movie. Initially, this role was supposed to be filled by comedian Dimitri Martin, who I'm a big mm. fan of, actually. I like yeah, yeah. I like his comedy a lot. Uh, I've only seen him act in a couple things, but um, yeah. I don't... Would have been I, more of a, a caricature, though, of an yes. economist. I could see yes. him being more point dexter and neurotic, even. Yeah, I, I think Jonah Hill is... He's not weak, but he plays like a bit of a delicate kind of character, almost mm-hmm. uh, lacking a bit of confidence in terms oh, yeah. of his social ability. But his belief in what in his belief in his knowledge is still intact throughout the film, and he's he mm-hmm. lives and dies on his statistics. And yeah. I I think there's something really relatable about this character, or something very human unlike a lot of the mm-hmm. other characters in the film, and that's why I think Jonah Hill's character works to humanize all the elements that Billy Bean is kind of dehumanizing or making us feel yeah. very isolated to. 
No, I think it would have been very easy for Hill. This is his breakout from comedy, right? right. His first yeah. dramatic role. He immediately got an Oscar nom. Then, you know, then he gets into things like Wolf of Wall Street and and really gets to that second era of his career. Um, and I think it's very easy to assume, you know, if you're doing something like that, you have to play off of Brad Pitt and Philip Seymour Hoffman and stuff like that, that you would affect more or go bigger or do something um more obvious right and i think it it shows a lot of wisdom and a lot of control that he's like i know what this character is i know what i have to do with you know he's got more words in the in the movie probably than brad pitt just because like you know bean's character is so monosyllabic most of the time he only says what he has to but hill's got all these monologues over montages and things like that and he's it's so restrained and I'm, i'm i'm extremely impressed i really like how this character works and I, I don't know, we can also mention, before we get into our sequence of scenes, there's a bit of controversy over how inspired by true events this is. There are things that are put into different orders. There are trades that had been made that happened at different times. And maybe the biggest thing to just touch on, because we're going to talk about it in our sequence, is Art Howe. So that's the, the coach that we mentioned, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is set up in this movie as an antagonist. He He sort of one of the hurdles that Bean and Brand have to get over to actually see the Moneyball uh, method to to its its full potential. Essentially, he's playing players in 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 the incorrect spots that so it's not going in accordance to Billy Bean's plan with the players. By all accounts, it doesn't sound like Art Howe was that much of a uh, a stick in the mud about this kind of thing. Um, but uh, I mean, Bean consulted on the movie. So, I mean, I, I saw quotes from Hal where he's like, I didn't know that this is what Bean thought of me. So maybe it was a matter of perspective, things like that. But I do think this is a necessary character for the story. It's maybe a shame that they went with someone who was a real person and just sort of conflated them into, we need, you need that sort of mid movie villain. Otherwise, if they had just started playing Moneyball from the beginning of the season, it's not as good of a story. And that's often how this thing goes. We, spoke about baseball is inherently cinematic some of these things you have to make more cinematic for them to work in a movie right yeah i'm okay with them kind of straying away from the absolute facts of the story for to make this a cinematic to to make this work in a cinematic fashion so Mm -hmm. i'm okay with a lot of these decisions it just seems uh like they really didn't do this character justice and he was a willing he was willing to consult on the film and they didn't even apparently reach out to him, which I think is yeah. just a mistake. I think mm-hmm. if you're conveying a character in real who's still alive in your film, you should always at least talk to them if they want to be spoken to. If they're open yeah. to talking with you, uh, I think you should always have a conversation just so stories like this don't happen. I think maybe people mm-hmm. are a bit better with this now, like production companies understand this a bit better now. Uh, yeah. But you really don't want to upset people who you're representing in the film in any way because it's bad press. Yeah. And I, I just well, think that's just... a mistake on, on Miller mm-hmm. and the producing team's part. Yeah, definitely. And I, I do – I just think it's the kind of thing where it's like why don't you, you just make up a character, right? Like another – like an assistant coach or, or one of the scouts make them a bigger part of, of the conflict. Well, they did that for Peter Brand. have them influencing. Well, yeah, so Brand isn't the guy's actual name. It was uh, De Podesta. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he had petitioned the film production to be like, just don't use my name on it. Cause or I likeness. They said they didn't want his likeness or name, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Even though people know who Paul DeBatesta is because he had yeah. such a big influence on this story, 
Uh, he didn't want his name in it. And the movie adjusted, kind of created a character that was an amalgamation of De Podesta and a couple other of Bean's inner circle combined into yeah. this character, which I think is the way you do it in a, in a movie. That's how you That's, that's what how you I would have done it. with Art Howe, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Because I totally buy that as the movie goes on, you know, he has to convince the owner, which goes pretty well, and then he has to get past the scouts and make sure they understand that, like, Basically, their combined, what, 80 years of scouting experience is invalid now and not really useful for what they're doing because he's just going to have this kid run run a, a statistical analysis and figure out who they can afford. Um, and then you got the coach and it's just and then you got the fans you have to convince. So it, I totally buy that you would need this in there it, as, as, you know, repeating ourselves now. It's a shame that they just went with the guy's real name and 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 his likeness too i think if you look up a photo of art Howe, they really styled philip seymour hoffman after him as yeah well. they did so but uh as as we get into our into our scene uh just take that all in context we just talk more i think about philip seymour hoffman's performance yeah I, I now that that's all said and done i don't think it's something we need to fully bring into the context of the scene yeah. um mm-hmm. and our scene features a lot of great performances today so we are going to do the double trade, and there are two sequences in this movie that have multiple players traded. So this is the first mm-hmm. time which this happens when the Oakland Athletics are still amidst their losing season. As frustration begins to mount towards his coach, Billy decides to radically shake up the team with a harsh fire sale, including away the team's most promising rookie, Pena, who's played by Gerardo Salasco, and their most prolific name, money-making name, uh, Jeremy Giambi, who's played by Nick Parazzo. Pete is forced to face his fears in telling Pena that he's been traded, and Billy makes a show of selling Giambi in front of his coach, Art Howe. Uh, Billy then addresses the players following the trades. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is, uh, again, we're going with the sequence, but all this sequence is on the same theme. It's essentially no more half measures. We really have to commit to this thing if we want to see it through. Um, there are too many safety nets. There are too many variables at play. Um, so let's go all in on Moneyball method. Um, this is essentially the midpoint uh, thematically and in terms of structure. It's a little bit after the midpoint in terms of the runtime, but it is kind of sink or swim. I think, you know, Billy Bean, and when we talk about Bean from now on, we're talking about the character, not talking about the real person and however that diverts. But I think Bean understands his career is already in jeopardy um, by this thing. So let's go all the way in because it's it's continually been mitigated by Art Howe, who's playing again with the conventional wisdom he's putting the guy at first who has more experience with first base not the first baseman uh scotty hatterberg played by uh chris pratt who according to peter brand's analysis is better to have at first base because it means he can hit he's going to get on base more often than the other first baseman and i think it's important that we do bring chris pratt's character into this because a lot of the movie is kind of actually built around hatterberg Less conventionally so than a lot of sports movies, but it does set Hatterberg up to be the unsung hero. Uh, he's one of the first signings that they kind of dive into as to like why this guy fits the money ball formula. And he's a ruined catcher. He's got nerve damage, so he can't throw from behind home plate anymore. He's basically worthless. He's damaged goods. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he can get on base, which is all that matters. To the extent that they're that it's another great scene where they're like, we're going to teach you to play first base. You don't know how to play first base. Scott? That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. 
Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Hey, anything worth doing is. And we're going to teach you. <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that, I remember that from the trailer. That line is, is mm-hmm. still really funny. Yeah, it, it, it works real well. And so you really, he kind of hits the point where you can't see whether or not this is going to work when they keep going up against uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Uh, so they take away all his options. They get rid of, as as you mentioned in the thing, they get rid of Pena, who's going to be an all-star. He's going to be a rookie of the year. Um, and they get rid of the most prolific name, which I think is another good point. They're getting rid of Jeremy Giambi, who sells tickets, and he's got a he's got a like a notable personality. But he's also a bit of one of their, you know, he's sort of singled out as one of their misfits still. Like, he was an affordable get. Um, but he's he's got a negative effect on on like the the morale, right? Because he's he's a partier. It's noted that he loves going to Vegas, things like that. Yeah, and Bean Wit has who knows if this is part of the real story. We're gonna try and stick to just the facts of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but Bean witnesses him kind of doing a like dancing for the guys in the locker room mm-hmm. and kind of just having way too much fun after they just lost. Uh, and it's kind of the it, that moment actually is the where the tides turn for Billy. I think that's when he's mm-hmm. like. Okay, radical change is un- is underway now. They, there's no another way to go about this. I have to get well, rid of this guy. Well, yeah, this scene is brought about after yeah, like another loss. The thing with Giambi dancing in the in the in the clubhouse, and you know uh, Hill or Brand just being like he's playing the other. He's playing the you know he's playing Pena again, right? Uh, to uh, to Billy Bean, and then you have there's there's this ongoing motif in the movie where Bean will just be driving around, sort of like trying to clear his head. And this, like, this whole sequence is precipitated by him just sort of arriving at a point and saying, yeah, to himself in a way that only Brad Pitt can. And then you launch into the sequence where, yeah, he 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 comes to the office. He's got a lot of confidence. He's on a mission um, and immediately starts making making plays to trade away Pena and Giambi. While Brand is still telling him, you know what, we should hold back like we. Billy, Pena is an all star. Okay, and if you dump him and this Hatterberg thing doesn't work out the way that we want it to, you know, this is this is the kind of decision that gets you fired. Yeah, there's so let's let's break down this first bit first, because I love how different this scene feels from the past like 30 minutes of the film at this point. Mm-hmm. Billy bursts through the doors with confidence. Suzanne, get me Ed Wade on the phone. Okay. Coffee on? Yes. Good morning. Good morning, Billy. Yeah, he says good morning last. Yeah, he does like this whole, like, but it's like actually him being a character. It's like him showing some personality, Mm -hmm. like he's reinvigorated. And just the pep in his step is so evident, and you just kind of know the scene is going to be fun or interesting. And then, you know, he brings Peter Brandt into the office, and he's immediately on the phone, and... This is the kind of stuff what what I like that I live for in this movie. I love the negotiations and the chats on the phone and mm-hmm. how he's pulling all the general managers to like do what he wants them to do and think what he wants them to yeah. think. Where do I get the feeling you're picking my pocket? You're not picking your pocket, you're picking mine. Giambi's name alone is worth more than me. What's wrong with him, Billy? There's nothing wrong with him. Now can we say it's done in theory and start drawing up the paperwork? Okay. Great. But you're gonna have to... I think he was gonna say something else. When you get the answer you're looking for, hang up. Uh, and this scene is just great. The inner, the banter between him and Hill um, is also mm-hmm. really profound, right? And I know you really wanted to talk about the bigger picture of baseball here. Uh, mm-hmm. This kind of is a microcosm of it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love in this that you can see Bean coming alive because this is the only time he gets to play the game, right? Like, that, that's the thing. Like, he's not even the coach, so he's not in the dugout with the guys, even if he wanted to be. And there's a whole thing in this movie about him being superstitious. He doesn't watch the games. Mm-hmm. He's always he's always away from the field. He's working out or he's turning a radio on and off and just getting little blips. Um, but he's very disconnected from the game for being someone who who was uh, drafted by the uh, by the Mets and was a born athlete. So I love that you can see like he's got some energy because he's got something to do. And what he's good at are these negotiations. It's like he's got an option. He's up at bat finally. Whereas the like for the previous thirty minutes, you're you're right. There's a different energy in the movie because he's just kind of. He built the team, and now he has to hope it will be played the way it should be, and it continually isn't, right? So he's yeah. he's got some juice again because he's got something he can do. He's got he's got an option now. Yeah, it's like the whole movie. He's kind of running into the brick wall, and then this is where he realizes there's a path around the brick wall, mm-hmm. and everything becomes more fluid. Like even that camera movement right yeah. off the start is like following him into the yep. into the players area and the coaches area and where versus like mm-hmm. a, a lot more of the statics colder yeah. shots you were getting earlier yeah no there's there's a great sort of undercurrent of of in this movie of bean being a mentor to brand essentially su- suggesting you know you're going to be doing this someday there's a bunch of things that you have to learn and he gives him like um there's a couple lines in this where i'm pretty sure this is from uh sorkin's script because yeah when you get the answer you're looking for hang up Uh, These are hard moves to explain to people. And what was the other one? Oh. It's a problem you think we need to explain ourselves. Don't. To anyone. Yes. That's a a Sorkin line. Yes, it is. 100%. I think that's Sorkin. Bet my life on it, right? Um, But it's really, you know, um, having this duo, having uh, Pitt and Hill allows you to have the conversation actually happen externally about we have not committed to this fully. Whereas I think in a traditional sports movie where it's like, if someone, you know, they're at that midpoint in the movie and they, they haven't, you know, they haven't really unlocked their potential as a player. They haven't self-actualized. The team isn't harmonizing, whatever the conflict is in your sports movie, you have to have like a coach, like give a big speech or you do a montage where like, you know, Rocky gets better at punching big sides of meat. Right. Yeah. And, and that's how you do this. This is just a conversation. And again, the action in this scene is using two speaker phones. And it's a, you know, it's a testament to Brad Pitt's charisma, his inherent charisma, that this scene is interesting yeah, to watch. Totally, right? totally. Because you're right, like, we were talking about how this is filmed. And, like, at least in this sequence in The Office, it's just shot reverse. Uh, you get a, It's a dirty shot from looking at Pitt. Or, sorry, uh, vice versa. Yeah, uh, at Hill. At Hill. Uh, over Pitt's shoulder and as he's sort of moving around in, in his uh, his rolling office chair behind the desk. Um, not a lot of very interesting things going on. Again, they're not trying to be like, oh, it's this big moment, so we better have, like, camera pans across the office. Or, uh, you know, I think I think the, the first thought about how to shoot this would have been, like, shoot through the windows into the office like you're kind of you're kind of sneaking in and you're seeing this happen and they they do it very dryly they let it speak for itself and yeah. i think you know miller miller shows a lot of restraint again well i saw like a little interview with him and uh, uh the sound mixer the dp and the editor uh the dp is wally fister who actually shot a lot of no- christopher nolan's most of christopher nolan's movies mm-hmm. uh, until somewhat recently yeah. miller and fister were talking about their past 
careers in documentary filmmaking and how mm -hmm. they wanted to shoot a lot of the uh, staff interactions more documentary style like very like mm -hmm. boring static kind of dirt yeah. like dirty like you're saying like so stuff is covering your foreground uh kind of mm -hmm. make it look a little handmade and I, mm -hmm. I think all that kind of plays into making these scenes feel really realistic and grounded um and just another note on this but it sorry go ahead i just say it doesn't fall to the temptation of doing like handheld mockumentary style no 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 which would have just been so tired like i think this movie wouldn't hold up as well because at the time i think 100 percent would make sense do it like make it look like the office make it look like all the mockumentary stuff that was happening at the time and and have it shaky and with like the zooms in on like someone's face when like they say the key line uh but it, everything is everything is very stable it's often locked off like it's again it would have worked really well in the in the moment and it would have aged horribly ultimately i think what the point they were saying was it just like less dynamism like not a not mm -hmm. trying to come up with very crazy camera movements really focusing on the essence of the scene which was the two characters yeah. and I, not trying to apply any melodrama no. or romanticism right yeah. again like so no close ups this is not what baseball is about yeah uh yeah it's just like static medium wides and I think mm -hmm. that's like a really safe way to play a scene like this. The scene kind of reminds me of those other moments later in the film mm -hmm. with between Billy and Pete, just kind of how he's yeah. like never satisfied. It kind of is like the precursor mm -hmm. to all those scenes. So yeah, the the next scene uh, is a is a, a key moment for Hill's character Brand, where he has to let Pena know that he's been traded. Yeah. Now this is building upon an earlier scene when. Bean has brand like role play, letting a player know he's been traded, which can obviously be a sensitive thing. It's kind of like firing somebody, but also like breaking up with somebody like again in like a personality driven star driven relationship driven look at developing a team. It should in theory be very difficult to tell someone they've been traded. But what Bean argues is that like these are professional ball players, They get it. You have to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. So. Jonah Hill in the in the initial interaction kind of tries to do all these add some so much personality to it and by the time it comes to a scene where he actually has to tell Pena that he's been traded he's very cut and dry he does exactly what Bean tells him to say Carlos you've been traded to the Tigers this is Jay Palmer's number he's the traveling secretary for the team He's expecting your call. We'll take care of everything. That that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. We're not sorry about it. It's not a shame. We didn't love having you. Nope. None of that. This is a career. These guys are working, and they just been traded. It's fine. Like they, I like that they established later that like getting sent down is a different. That's thing. way worse. And there is it's so much. Sadder. There is an emotional side too, because like Bean gets it. He it happened to him. But no, I like the sequence. It's a fifty-eight second oneer in the in the room. Okay. Right. We're. Pit, or uh, Hill Hill comes in, he sits and down. Static. Uh, the guy playing Carlos Pena, yep, comes in, he sits down. There's maybe like 20 words exchanged. No one says thank you, there's no tears. And then at the end, like once, Car once uh, Pena leaves, Hill exhales. And it is kind of like you were just holding your breath for 58 seconds. Yeah. There's a nice little aspect of his performance where he's like, he exhales and he's like... Okay. <sighs> 
okay and like sort of walks out of the yep. room with a little bit more purpose like he checked that box he did that thing that's going to be a part of his career you know I, I i like it's a nice little moment yeah and i not that the sort of the actor is gerardo salasco not that he really mm-hmm. has much to do in the scene but i just like his the dialogue they give him at the end which is like is that it and they're yeah. like yep that's it and i i like yeah, but, the precise the precision the business orientedness of this yeah. it, it just feels so legitimate to me well, I like and like he kind of like rubs his jaw. Yeah. Um, yep. Partway through it, and you're like, is oh, is he getting angry? Is this is going to be? And he's just kind of like, is that it? Yes. And and again, like as we've mentioned a number of times, I think a key to this movie's success is that every time they had the option of going bigger or louder or crazier or with more energy, they chose to do less and to let the thing speak for itself, and it continually works because of that. Yeah, you know, it's something I didn't even think about when you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast today. Like, there's no one who's really, you know, amping their performance up to 11 to try and win an Oscar mm-hmm. here. And it's really refreshing to see that. Yeah. It's not very common. Yeah, it's 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 just, it's a less high-profile thing to do. You maybe won't, like, if you're trying to think about best supporting actor potential options from the last decade you he'll may not actually come up in your mind but when you watch this movie you see it again and you see its value and he didn't have to really lean into the sweeter stuff or the sappier stuff he let he let the script speak for itself and a lot of restrained performances that are again like not always the first choice that people will make yeah uh and then so after this uh then we have our 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 confrontation with art howe where uh, Bean and, and Hill come in, and I like how they set up this shot because it's almost from Art Howe's point of view. Yeah. It's not like an eyeline point of view, but they come in, they both take these seats. You'll have to start Hatterberg. Yeah, I don't want to go 15 rounds, Billy. The lineup card is mine, and that's all. Okay, the lineup card is definitely yours. I'm just saying you can't start paying it first. Well, I am starting him at first. I don't think so. He plays for Detroit now. Yeah. Because <laughs> then he calls Giambi into the office while Art is still taking in the news that they traded Pena. And it's a pretty like comedic punctuation I... to the scene because Art, Art Howe's vision, field of vision changes where it, it moves, the camera pans right, yes. cuts Hill out of it to make room for Giambi. And then you have this locked off conversation between Pitt or uh, between Bean and Giambi where he explains to him basically in the same way that like you've been traded. He even goes so far as to say you're a good ball player. We appreciate having you. Jeremy, you've been traded to the Phillies. This is Ed Wade's number. He's a good guy. He's the GM. He's expecting your call. Buddy will help you with the plane flight. You're a good ball player, Jeremy. And we wish you the best. Giambi gets up and leave and then Pitt's Pitt takes his seat. Jeremy's gone too. And this is what, you know, this is where you get the biggest stuff from Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is him just playing like an old beer bellied manager who says something like, you're killing this team. And yeah, shakes his head. That's a very good impression. Actually, I wish this is where we wish we were doing the podcast. Tay's got a pitch perfect um, Hoffman closing his eyes and shaking his head. He's, so dialed in i i love that you can just feel the frustration oozing out of him but he's like so hopeless and 
just looks exhausted that he's not even going to argue. And he's like, yeah. and then at the end, he almost looks like he's going to cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. And then, and you know, he asks, he asks uh, Brand, he's like, do you believe in this? And he, he says, are you in on this? He's like, 100%. And then they really like twist the knife where he's like, do you want this door open yeah. or closed <laughs> to like finish the scene? They really, <laughs> again, like they, they really give it to Art Howe, the character here. Um, this is one of the only comedic and, scenes in the movie too. Yeah, there are other like, They'll, you have little like sort of wry punctuations at times and things like that or and like things where like there's almost certainly an improvisation where late in the movie um bean is like sitting alone in the clubhouse and brand comes in and throws a ball at him that he doesn't see coming and he misses it and then he calls him a knucklehead and it's brad pitt calling someone a knucklehead and it almost you don't buy it at yeah. all that anyone would ever say yeah. that um, but you're right. This is to like, non-baseball. People. This is in this. Yeah, this is in the script. Um, comedy in this scene. The the yeah. choice of when Giambi comes in and how it's shot really just buries Art Howe under under the uh, the fact that he has no options anymore. He has to play this team in a way that will make him look really bad as a coach if it doesn't work. Um, and he knows he doesn't have a future at the A's after this year, and he wants to have a future at another team. And he has to play this Moneyball team, the first Moneyball team that, that was ever designed like this. Um, but, of course, uh, once we get through this sequence, then you start to see how Moneyball works. Yeah, and you can feel for Art Howe's character a little bit throughout the movie. But this by this point, you realize that he's just a big stick in the mud. And he's the obstacle mm-hmm. in the way of the team's success. So you yeah. are fully on board with the beats of comedy happening. Mm-hmm. And I know we, we mentioned it really briefly in the Handmaiden podcast last episode. But the fact that the fact remains like comedy in the wide and tragedy in the yeah. close up because the whole thing yeah. is shot in these big static wides that give you so much space to like take in all the perspectives. And it's mm-hmm. what makes the scene very funny because if you were doing like super close ups of Art Howe and his eyes like watering at the thought of this, you're, yeah. you're like, this is sad. You're killing this team they keep it just wide enough so that like you can, you can kind of laugh at Phil Seymour Hoffman's performance. He's an inherently funny guy, right? He understands his physicality and things like that. So even his head shake, if they took it, you're right. If they took it in closer, the head shake would Mm -hmm. read a lot more tragic and a a lot more defeatist. Um, But it, it, it holds back and and works real well for that. And then, um, yeah. And then they, they kind of, to put the button on the sequence, um, uh, Bean goes into the clubhouse and gives the rousing, oh, you know, baseball speech. You may not look like a winning team, but you are one. So, play like one tonight. It's it's so funny because again, like I think it's doing a really smart thing where bean is not a leader of men no he is not kyle chandler he's not Patton. he's not any of these guys he's not denzel washington and in, in remember the titans uh he's not gene hackman you know he comes out he's a player and if you've ever seen any of those post-game interviews with any athlete ever 99 percent of them are saying these um, they're speaking cliches and they're speaking in cliches and they have no charisma they are good at one thing and it is going out into that area and hitting that thing where it needs to go or running real fast so when he comes out to give this inspiring speech 
and I mean, you know, uh, to to Pratt's credit, um, he sells how bad that speech is with his look at the very end of the sequence, where you guys read on his face where he's like, "Oh, uh, th- th- that's it. Yeah. Okay, I guess I'll go field some grounders because I'm going to be on first tonight." Yep. But no, like this is—it's just a—it's a critical sequence in this movie for about eighty minutes now. We've watched the A's lose, we watch Bean lose, and just fight against people and having, having his team cannibalized by other teams. It's been loss, 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 nonstop. And then finally, this is your turning point. They, they remove all safety nets. They no more half measures, and that's where you, we start to win after this. And uh, it's a—it's a pretty satisfying shift. Maybe, maybe the thing. I didn't realize it was so on my mind until getting into this discussion about it, but this movie is just the the value of restraint, both in directing choices, production choices, performances. Um, they're doing so much by doing very little. I think it's a nice way to punctuate the scene, Tim. I, that kind of encapsulates my thoughts on the movie as well. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll move over to our shout-outs. Uh, I, I think both of ours kind of overlap. So, oh, okay. Um, mine, I, they do I'm going to shout-out what I'm calling the Misfit Montage. So that's earlier in the movie where Jonah Hill's character has a voiceover. Uh, Brand is talking about how the, how the statistics work at a very high level and the fact that by reducing players down to this number about how often they're going to get on base – they can afford a championship team. You've got this song that's used very strategically a number of times in this movie. It's called The Mighty Rio Grande. It's by the band uh, This Will Destroy You. And it's kind of, it's very of its time, this kind of like ambient, slowly building instrumental piece. Uh, but it kind of tugs at your heartstrings to the extent that like this is a montage of a camera zoomed in on computer screens and like a mouse pointer and these blurry pixelated images of Chad Bradford, who I think is a great character in this movie, even though he was already on the team previously the season before in, in reality, but he's a weird pitcher. He's got a weird throw and they just sort of talk about like the hidden value in these people. These people have been overlooked and it honestly like kind of makes me tear up every time. I really love this sequence and it's something that I don't think should get at your heartstrings as much because again, it's just like, let's look at these stats. Let's look at these computer screens. It's, kind of anti-cinematic in a way uh, but i think it's super effective for that reason yeah i think the scene you're talking about really makes the movie what it is because it's allowing some emotional levity into something that is merely statistics and analysis and should be so mm-hmm. cold and objective but you're right like the way that this montage works under like with that score underneath it uh with the way it's shot um i'm gonna talk about it with my shout out now because mm-hmm. yeah. I really like the way they used screens and specifically like the aesthetic of pixelation throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually like the opening title card, Moneyball, is spelt out with pixels, uh, like just yeah. kind of flickering little bright pixels. And I, I thought that aesthetic was a unique choice because it doesn't directly call into mind baseball for me. But what it does mm-hmm. remind me of nostalgically, it links me back to like, standard definition television watching sports mm-hmm. at in 720p uh yeah those the aesthetic was nostalgic to me and i thought it was just an interesting choice by miller and the cinematography team to incorporate this because there's so much archival footage also spread out through the film that it mm-hmm. it really it meshes really well together to kind of create a story that you know is 
in the past, but you're combining nostalgic looking elements with these elements from the actual past. So the way they shot the film, it has like somewhat of a nostalgic filmic quality. They did shoot it on like an old school Panavision camera. And then you have actual archival footage mixed in. And I just, the way they use those pixels, man, the really close up shots of mm-hmm. little flickering pixels, I, I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, the, the pixels are a great, like a very rich shorthand for the movie subversion. Because any baseball movie, you're going to start with like the grain of wood on the bat or the, the, the stretch marks in the leather on the glove that's just been oiled or the dirt being kicked up by a cleat, all these tactile things. And it's like you're looking at it through a computer screen. Right. You are one step removed, just like numbers are, in theory, very removed from the reality of baseball, but maybe they're not. I think it's a, it's a ni- it's a nice little direct way to say this is a different type of baseball movie. We are directly fighting against the way that you would normally film this and the way that you would normally build a team or play the game, yada yada. All the stuff we talked about. Yeah, well said. That that kind of illustrates my point a bit full more fully, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I love it. It's it's good thing to know cuz it was definitely a part of why I like the montage, but it it was nice to really have you pointed out directly that like the pixelation pixel have you point out the pixels. <laughs> so uh next time in our next episode this is uh taylor and i get to choose a baseball movie and we're picking one that has very little to do with baseball but still has some great baseball sequences it's a movie called everybody wants some that's with two exclamation points it's a link later movie from 2016 you can rent it online right now it is a great hangout movie it is kind of it's a bit of a spiritual successor to um, Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused, but it's about a college baseball team on the weekend before they start uh, term, and just them getting to know each other, trying to fit in with one another, messing around, placing some bets on whether or not they can hit a baseball with a with an axe. Great movie, uh, you'll really enjoy it. You should definitely check it out before the episode comes out. Yeah, one of the biggest biggest surprises probably of the decade for for me. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. wants them, so please check that one out, uh, and we'll hopefully see you back here in a couple of weeks to listen to that one. Yeah. And then before we go, we have some recommendations. I had a lot of options of like different types of um, sports movies to recommend, but in the research, Taylor, you pointed out, we actually didn't touch on this, but Soderbergh was one of the first people who was brought on to possibly direct yeah. this, and they apparently got very close to production before it got shut down. They didn't like some of the changes Soderbergh was making yeah, to the script. Yeah, a day before production. It sounds like it, yeah, it sounds like it was way more, I'm very sorry for this pun, but inside baseball, right? Like, it would have been more contract negotiations, more jargon, and probably a lot more of that, like, fast language i think soderbergh probably would have gelled pretty well with a sorkin script about baseball and they they wanted to be more comedic they said they it was supposed to be more of a comedy so that didn't pan out they then you know pitt was producing he eventually went with miller and we got this great movie but there there is this uh this other movie that i will recommend called high flying bird it's from 2019 it's a soderbergh movie about the nba lockout uh he shot it all on an iphone 8 did cool. the deal direct with Netflix. He just wanted to get it out there. He wanted people to see it. He shot it fast and dirty. And it's basically about like a, an NBA agent pulling like a contract con to try to get what he wants over the course of like a 72 hour lockout. It's a lot. I think spiritually, it probably has a, a lot uh, in common with what Soderbergh's Moneyball would have been. It's a lot of back back office dealings and, 
playing one potential buyer off of another one, all stuff like that. It's a really fun movie. It's really cool. Uh, it's got a solid cast. I'd highly recommend it. Definitely check that out. I, uh, I'm a bit behind on my Soderberghs. Well, he keeps he keeps just churning them I know. out, even through COVID. I, also, I, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed Kimmy, uh, his uh, his second COVID one, but that's not the recommendation. Okay, um, <laughs> and I know this is going to divide our audience probably down the middle, but my <laughs> my recommendation is the 1998 film Basketball. Uh, I'm not a hater of baseball, so baseball fans out there, please don't hate me for picking this. But <laughs> this movie has always been a pretty riotous comedy for me. I think it, <laughs> well, first of all, it's directed by David Zucker, who is one of my favorite comedic directors. He did movies such as, uh, well, he was part of the team that made airplane naked gun, uh, top secret. Some of my favorite parody movies. And this movie parodies sports movies. Uh, and it stars Matt stone and Trey Parker, the two guys who are most famous for creating and doing most of the voices in South Park. So this movie has, you know, it's it's quite inappropriate. It's a hard-rated R, and <laughs> it has a lot to say about sports movies that if you're a true diehard about sports, maybe you won't find as funny as I do. But I think this movie is genuinely funny. It has some really good comedy that maybe... Some of it hasn't aged well, but some of it has aged just fine. And I... You know, it might be divisive, but that's my pick. That's my recommendation for the week. Yeah, so there you go. You got a uh, like a, a an obscure and and complicated uh, negotiations movie and basketball. Yeah. So I uh, th- hope you guys have fun with those recommendations. <laughs> As always, please uh, please subscribe if you haven't. Please review us on iTunes if you can, and uh, spread the word. You can catch us on Instagram at sscpod. Uh, where we do weekly roundups of what everyone's watching. We'd love to hear what you've been watching, what you would recommend. And uh, yeah, with that, I would just say that I'm still romantic about baseball, but it's okay if you're not. 